so now what? Christmas has come, it's gone. We've celebrated the birth of the baby, sung songs in his honor, given presents to each other to mark the occasion. Most of us are back to work, back to life as usual. So now what? What difference does Christmas make on December 28th? Christmas, and when I say Christmas, I'm not referring to the celebration that we hold on December 25th, but to Christ's birth itself. Christmas makes this difference. It opens the possibility of a radically different way to live. Because of Christ's birth and what followed, the life of love and obedience he lived, the sacrificial death he died, the defeat of death he accomplished, we have an option to live in a way that we would not otherwise have. This different way of life was made possible for us through Jesus, whom the Bible describes as the author or first leader or pioneer of the faith. He opened the way for us and showed us how to draw our life from the Heavenly Father. This kind of life is described in different ways in the Bible. It's pictured as life in the kingdom of God, life under God's rule and his care. It's pictured as a life that flows out of a deep connection, an active connection to Jesus Christ, a life of union with him. And it's pictured, as Paul often does and does in our passage today, as life that originates and proceeds by the Spirit of God. It's a spiritual as opposed to a merely animal kind of life. That's something that people, even religious people, even people who've spent their life in church, often miss. There's a Jesus way to live. It's for good reason that the Bible describes him as the way, and Christians as the people of the way. Most of your neighbors don't live this way and aren't even capable of it because it requires the spirit that lies dormant in most people to be made alive or to be activated, to be turned on. In our text today, which is from Galatians chapter 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul makes clear that there is a right way and a wrong way to go about living this kind of life, a way that works and a way that doesn't work. The people he was writing to, friends from the Galatian church he himself had founded, were trying to go about this life the wrong way. Paul could see that, and it weighed on him heavily. And because of that, this is the most emotionally charged of all Paul's letters. Let's look at our text. I'm going to read from verse 21 through 25, chapter 3, and then we're going to skip down to chapter 4 and read the first seven verses. So Galatians 3, verse 21. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But this scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That could also be translated, and I think even better, being given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ might be given to those who exercise faith. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. 
So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. What I'm saying is this, that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has also made you an heir. We're going to start with the end of this argument. And this is an argument. Paul is doing his very best to convince his Galatian friends that they are on the wrong track. So we're going to begin with the end of this argument, and then we're going to go back, work backwards. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. That's the famous verse we hear at Christmas time. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. When the time had fully come. None of us knows what time of the year it was that Jesus was born. Do you know that scholars, I mean serious scholars, have suggested dates from every month of the year. And December 25th is not likely to have been the date that Jesus was born, but it's probably as good as any date since we don't really know. We don't know the time of the year, but we do know that his birth came at just the right time in history. It was when the time had fully come. Now, what does that mean? In what sense had the time fully come? Well, some scholars, some historians especially, suggest that the time had fully come because by the first century, Greek had become the common language spoken throughout the Western world, which made it possible for the good news of Jesus Christ, what God had done through Christ, to be understood by people everywhere, people around the Western world. That wasn't true in previous centuries. Others point out that the Romans were great road builders, For the first time in history, people could travel internationally by road, which meant that the good news of God's love could be carried into previously inaccessible places. And still others point out that if Christ had come a hundred years earlier or a couple hundred years later, the world would have been at war. But Jesus was born during the Pax Romana, during the Roman peace, when the empire stretched from Britain in the west all the way to India in the east, and enforced peace between what had once been warring nations. So again, the gospel could go across international lines. Those scholars may be on to something. Those things may explain why the time was right. But Paul here is not really thinking about why, but about what. What God did when the time had fully come. He sent his son to redeem for himself a people, the new people of God. Paul, who is a thoroughly Jewish thinker, that is something phenomenally important to know if you read the New Testament, and something that had been forgotten for several hundred years among scholars. Paul's thoroughly Jewish, and he is thinking 
in Old Testament language and themes. Just as God once sent Moses to redeem a people for himself from slavery in Egypt, God sent his son to redeem a people for himself from slavery to sin. This is Exodus language, Exodus concepts. God sent Moses when the time had fully come, when the 400 years of slavery in Egypt predicted to Abraham were fulfilled. And now when the time was fully come, God sent his own son, not Moses, a servant in his household, as the author of Hebrews puts it, but his own son to accomplish an even greater exodus and redeem both Jews and Gentiles. It's no coincidence that Paul's friend and co-worker Luke actually uses the word exodus to describe what Jesus' death would accomplish. Paul understood that the coming of Christ was the biggest thing that had happened since the dawn of time, bigger even than Israel's defining miracle, the exodus. Christ's coming changed everything. And that's what he was desperately trying to get across to his old friends in Galatia. They understood about the new life. He told them about that. But they were trying to live it in the old way as if Christ hadn't come. As if the exodus hadn't, the new exodus hadn't happened. As if everything hadn't changed. Paul saw the Galatians, and especially the, the people who were influencing them, as modern-day counterparts to those Jews who, after the first exodus, were trying to talk everyone into going back to Egypt and back to slavery. Imagine that you have a neighbor, and you're looking out your window, and you see him out there trying to cut down a gigantic oak tree with a hatchet. So you think, well, i got to do something about that, and you take him your chainsaw. And he thanks you profusely, and he admires the chainsaw, and he studies the owner's manual. And then, when he's all done, he lays it aside, picks up his hatchet, and goes back to work. How would you feel? That's just how Paul felt when he thought about what his friends in Galatia were doing to themselves. Paul had introduced these Galatians to Christ and the new way of the Spirit, and they thanked him profusely. But they turned right around and tried to live the new life the old way by keeping the Jewish law. Thank you. Paul had given them, in effect, a chainsaw. They had laid it aside and gone back to work with the hatchet. That bothered him so much that he told them, if you let yourself be circumcised, now understand what he means by that is, if you place yourself under the Jewish law and try to follow it, Christ will be of no value to you. Further, you will be obligated to obey the whole law. Still further, trying to be justified by law, you've been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. Obviously, Paul is fired up. See, after he left Galatia to do missionary work, some teachers came to town, insisting that the Galatians, who were not Jewish, could only follow the Jewish Messiah if they became Jewish, or at least if they acted like it. They told them they needed to be circumcised. Now, circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with the Jews. They needed to become Jews and follow Jewish law. Paul was so outraged by this that he calls the Galatians in this book foolish. He implies that someone must have put them under a spell 
he pronounces a curse against the people who were telling them to be circumcised, and he calls them agitators. He gets so wound up, he says, I am so sick of them harping about circumcision, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. It's the harshest language in the New Testament. He's saying to them, look, I gave you a chainsaw. They gave you a hatchet. And you're foolish enough to use the hatchet. What is the matter with you? What these Jewish teachers were saying to the Galatians was essentially this. You need to observe the Jewish law in order to belong to the Jewish Messiah. Now that sounds right, doesn't it? It made sense, but not to Paul. He says bluntly, these people don't know what they're talking about. They go on endlessly about the law. They don't even understand what the law was supposed to do for Jews, yet they're trying to apply it to Gentiles. They don't understand that Christ's coming, born of a virgin, born under law, born to redeem those under law, has changed everything for them and for you. Now remember, he's saying this because he knows there's a new way to live because of Christ's coming, the way of the Spirit. It's not only a new way, it's the only way to live under the rule and care of God that is in the kingdom of God. That's true for us, just as it was true for the Galatians. But the teachers that came to Galatia after Paul left were ignoring the vast difference that Christ's coming had made. They were telling the Galatians they needed to live by the Jewish law just as if Christ hadn't come. They were telling them to put down the chainsaw and pick up the hatchet. Telling them that it was better to go back to slavery than to live free. So Paul has been trying, first in one way and then in another, to show the Galatians that they have been misled. He points out that these teachers are, are telling them something different from the, same, the gospel that he told them and that they received and trusted. He illustrates for them how the true gospel had changed his life personally. He reminds them of their own story, how their faith in Jesus Christ had changed their lives. In the part of the letter we're looking at, he conducts a Bible study from the Old Testament to show that these self-proclaimed teachers don't know what they're talking about. They're trying to get the Galatians to submit to a Jewish law that they themselves only half understand. He does that in a number of ways. We don't have time to look at all of them. Read the letter to the Galatians. You'll see them. But I want to mention just a few. First, Paul insists that the law, though it's good, it's spiritual, it's righteous, was never designed to do what these smooth talkers were saying it does. It cannot impart life. That's verse 21. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. These teachers were all about righteousness, but they were thinking of it wrongly. They were thinking of righteousness as a list of do's and don'ts. And in this case, specifically Jewish do's and don'ts. But Paul knew that righteousness requires the impartation of a new kind of life. Righteousness is a life. A life lived in relationship to God. A life that flows out of a faith connection to Jesus. When a person trusts in Jesus Christ... He receives a righteous standing before God. But that standing comes as part of a new life, an eternal, spiritual, 
revolutionary kind of life. You can't separate the standing from the life. And you better not try. If you do, you're going to get in all kinds of theological trouble. It's a package deal. You can't have the standing without the life. You can't have the life without the standing. The teachers who had come to Galatia didn't understand that. They were thinking of a righteous standing with God as if it were a reward for keeping an elaborate set of rules. But Christ didn't come to give us a set of rules. He came to give us life and life to the full. So that's one thing. Trying to keep a set of rules, even good rules, even biblically sanctioned rules, will never impart spiritual life to a person nor the righteous standing that goes with the life. So, if the Jewish law couldn't do that, does that mean it has no value? That's a question that Paul asks in chapter 3. Does that mean the law is worthless? Not at all. The law did serve a crucially important role. It made people aware of their sin and of their need. That's the whole point of verses 23 and 24. But the teachers who had come to Galatia had got that exactly backwards. They were urging people to prove themselves righteous by keeping the law when God had given the law not to prove people righteous, but to prove them sinners. So Paul knew it was never going to work. As he wrote in Romans chapter 3, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That's what the law is for. When I was younger, television shows were frequently interrupted by a one-minute test of the National Emergency Broadcast System. Do they still do that? Do they? You know, those were the days when we, we lived under the constant threat of nuclear war. And the emergency broadcast system would, would alert you, just in a test form. But that system couldn't protect anyone from a nuclear attack or from a natural disaster. It could only warn people to run to shelter. That's what Paul says the law was designed to do. It warned people of danger. Warning, this behavior will harm you. Warning, you are impairing your relationship with God and damaging your soul by this action towards your neighbor. It warned, but it couldn't protect. What it could do was send people to their shelter. Send them to Christ. But the law could not and wasn't designed to make people right with God. The law, this is verse 24, was put in charge to lead us to Christ. That was its job. But now that Christ has come and faith in him is possible, we are no longer under the supervision of law. Well, does that mean the law is no longer worth anything? Does it mean we can flout it or make fun of it or relegate it to the junk heap? Let me come at this from another direction. Say you had a babysitter who watched you until you were 12. She'd pick you up from school. She'd give you something to eat. Make sure you got your homework done. Even after you were 12, you went with your little brothers and sisters to her house after school. You still ate her meals and were helped by her counsel. But when you were 16, you got your own car. When you were 18, you went off to college. You got married. You got a job. You no longer needed your old babysitter, right? So should you make fun of her? Cast off the manners that she taught you? Relegate her to the junk heap? Of course not. 
Even though her role in your life has been fulfilled, you will still honor her and practice the good things she taught you. That's how it is with the law. While Paul would never bend an inch when it comes to going back under law, he never once dishonored or disparaged its value. Now, the babysitter illustration is actually very close to the illustration Paul himself uses in verse 24. The word the NIV translates as a verb, put in charge of us, is really a noun. It's the word pedagogue. You've heard that word? We use it today. Today, by pedagogue, we mean a teacher. But when Paul was writing, the pedagogue wasn't a teacher. The pedagogue was a slave, usually a trusted and highly honored slave who was given the responsibility of looking after a wealthy family's boys between the ages of 7 and 17. He took them to school. He saw to it that they behaved. He taught them how to act in various social settings. He made sure that they dressed appropriately and didn't do anything to embarrass the family. Some of you are saying, can I get one of those guys? Paul is saying that that is what the law did for people before the coming of Christ. But now that Christ has come, the law's authority has ended. In Paul's day, when a child reached 18, he no longer needed the pedagogue to tell him what to do. The pedagogue had fulfilled his duty. Just so when people come to Christ, the law has fulfilled its duty. Do you think it would honor the pedagogue pedagogue if his 20-year-old or 25-year-old or 30-year-old former charge followed him around all day asking him how to dress and what to do and how to behave? No, it would dishonor him. It would be evidence that he'd failed in his duty. Paul saw the teachers in Galatia doing exactly that with the law. They thought they were honoring it. They were doing just the opposite. We don't honor the law by going back under law. That's one of Paul's lines. But by giving or by enjoying by taking, by living the good life that Jesus came to make possible. God wants us to live as full-grown sons. That's chapter 4, verse 5. Not as underage children who need to be taken by the hand and led around by their babysitter. By sending his son at Christmas, God opened a new, dynamic, fulfilling way of life to men and women and children who will trust in him. It is founded on a deep confidence in Jesus and energized by daily interaction, constant interaction with the spirit whom God, chapter 4, verse 6, sent into our hearts, the spirit that cries out in us, Abba, Father. That's the so what of Christmas. Because Christ came, we can choose to live a spiritual life. A religious life is not necessarily a spiritual life. We can live as full-grown sons and daughters of God, relying on his spirit, following his promptings, and obeying his word. We can live the life that Jesus called abundant, the good life. It's a life filled with peace instead of turmoil, with purpose instead of emptiness, a life rich in contentment instead of greed. It's a life of submission to God, but more than anything else, it is a life of love. You may not know how to live that life yet, 
that's okay, as long as you're willing to learn. But here's the thing. You don't start by learning. You start by becoming a learner. That's a a very important distinction. The biblical word for learner is the word disciple. That's all it means. Because you want what Jesus has to give, you enroll as his student. But you need to know that Jesus does not take part-time students. That's not because he's contrary, but because he's a realist. The life he will give you and teach you to use will take everything you've got. You can't really experience it if you hold back, if you give half, if you hedge your bets. You need to trust Jesus and take the plunge. Ask him to give you his kind of life and instruct you on how to live it. Become his disciple, in other words. Now, some people aren't ready for that, frankly. And that's perfectly understandable. They're still trying to figure out if this is all true or not. And you want to know what you're getting yourself into. Jesus himself made that point very strongly. But in a very real sense, you know what? You'll never be ready. You can put this off forever. I still have this shadow of a doubt. I'm, I'm just wondering... The choice to become Jesus' disciple always will take you beyond yourself. That's the nature of trust. But Jesus has proved himself by his birth in Bethlehem, his life in Israel, his death on Calvary, his resurrection from the tomb, and his 2,000 years of faithfulness to his people. He's proved himself, and he's proved his way of life. And so now it's up to us. Is that what we want? Do we want to live that way, that new way? that new life, empowered by his spirit. That's what I want. That's the way to start this new year. Let's pray. And before I pray, maybe you just, you haven't started that life yet or you don't know how. But if you're willing to become Jesus' student, his learner, would you tell him that? If you want that, would you ask him to give it to you, to give you his life? It is going to cost you. Life won't be the same, but it's worth it. God, some of us have been hacking at that big oak tree with our hatchet for a long time, and we're just tired. You look at us and shake your head, I think. Lord, in this coming year, We don't want to waste our time and we especially don't want to waste the life that you gave us. So we ask for your help.
wants you to step in and do what we can't do and don't have any idea how to do. We ask this, frankly, for our own sakes, but also for the sake of Jesus who died and rose again, who gave everything so that we could have this life. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>